We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 15. The book of Revelation, chapter 15. We shall read from verse 5. Revelation 15, verse 5. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth, and so on. Here we come to consider another view that John is given of the most holy place in the universe, the most sacred, the most holy spot in our language and in our thinking and in our understanding in the whole of the universe. We are told that John says after he has heard and listened to the great song of the redeemed, standing on the sea of glass, rejoicing, singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. But then his attention is directed back again to the temple, <clears throat> the temple, not the earthly temple, which was but a type, but the heavenly temple. And we are told that he looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Now you will find that when we go back earlier to chapter 4, the first vision that John is shown Verse 1 of Revelation 4, after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. A door was opened in heaven so that John comes to behold the glorious throne that is governing and controlling, ruling over the universe. Again in the chapter 19, and the verse 11 of that chapter you have, John again saying, I saw heaven opened. 
and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him and so on. And here are references to an opening into heaven to see heavenly glories and to see how that heaven is in real control of events on earth. But here in this portion that we read uh, in chapter 11 to begin with, you have a more concentrated view, chapter 11 and the verse 19 we read, and the temple of God was opened in heaven. It just wasn't heaven opened, but we've gone in, and now something is actually opened in the heaven that has been opened. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament, And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Now, as we said last week, it is as though John, just like a photographer, they take or they see the same picture from a different angle so that they get new, fresh insights. They see the wider picture. And when we come to this portion that we're at in chapter 15, Behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So he's taken back to see something else about this glorious sight that he has previously seen. And you will note the detail that John gives of what he saw. I looked... And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. Now you have to go back to the Old Testament to find the details. And as you've heard me say before, one of the laws of interpretation of Scripture is the law of the first mention. It's always important to go back to the law of the first mention. What does God's word say at the very beginning? What is the first thing that we're told about certain articles or persons or places or events? And when we go back to see in the Old Testament Moses erecting the tabernacle that God appointed. In that tabernacle, there was the Ark of the Covenant preserved in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And here is what John is seeing. You imagine the most holy spot in the camp of Israel, was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. That was there in the midst of the camp of the Israelites. The Israelites didn't imagine there was any spot on the earth so sacred, so holy. The high priest could only enter into that place 
once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he dare not enter in without blood and without incense. He had to bring a cloud of incense between himself and the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. And he had to sprinkle blood there and without blood and without incense he would die. And all Israel recognized, I think it's Eidershim who tells us that the Israelites, they had a rope tied round the ankle of the high priest so that when he went in to the Holy of Holies behind the veil and they couldn't see him, they were depending on the uh, ringing of the bells There were round the bottom of his garment, of course, pomegranates and bells. And as he moved, they could hear the sound. They knew he's alive. He's been accepted by God. And that was a joyful sound to them. But if it were to be silent, and they concluded he's dead, no one could go within that veil to retrieve his body. So they had that rope to drag him out again if God had rejected him. And it was a most sacred event, a most sacred spot. Now look where we are here. After that I looked. He's not looking at the earthly tabernacle or the earthly temple or the earthly testimony. I looked and behold, the great wonder of it, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened so that he could see into it. He could see what it contained. He was looking at the most holy, sacred place in the whole universe. Heaven itself. And he tells us, seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. Now, obviously, these are intended to provide us with the information as to regards the service that was here uh, in the service of God within this Holy of Holies in heaven. These are angelic priests or priestly angels serving God. You can see that according to their apparel, They have a resemblance. You go back to the first chapter of Revelation and we have the vision of the glorified Redeemer and we're told in verse 13 of chapter 1 that he was clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about the paps with a golden girdle and so on. And here, these seven angels... In this temple, in this tabernacle, 
they are clothed in pure and white linen and having their breast girded with golden girdles. They have this resemblance to the glorified Redeemer himself. Now, why is John seeing this? It is seen in connection with the victory of the uh, saints, the redeemed, back in the second verse of this chapter 15. I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and so on. Now, what is happening? In the presence of the redeemed, there is judgment. Just as it was in the Old Testament, you remember, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, and there they are where they're facing the impossible, the Red Seas before them. There's no way through it, and there's no way of retreat. The Egyptians are closing in upon them. And then what does God tell Moses? He's to get up from his face, and they are to go forward, speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. They're not going to get the victory over the Egyptians. They're going to go back into bondage unless they go forward. But then God said, This day, Moses, my people are going to see the mighty power of God. They are to stand still and see what God is going to do. And what happens? When the Israelites are safely over the Red Sea, the Egyptians immediately follow to be buried in its waters. Then what did Moses do? Moses sang. And the children of Israel sang. And Miriam joined in. And they sang. And what were they singing about? The great works that God had done. Now here, what do we see? The singing, triumphant saints of God singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. This is the full church of the redeemed singing in the presence of God. But all have not been redeemed. The Egyptians had defied God. Pharaoh had mocked God. And God had sent his plagues of judgment. Here we are brought to see seven angels with the seven Last plagues, the fullness of God's judgments. And here we are shown these seven angels being directed 
coming out of the tabernacle, out of the temple, directed to go and pour out the vials of wrath of God upon the earth. This is heavenly wrath. And this is heavenly wrath coming from a specific place. This is divine heavenly wrath coming out of the most holy place in the universe. This is holy wrath. This is justified wrath. This is righteous wrath. Can you tell me of anything that you know of more awful, more terrible than divine wrath? Can you think of anything anywhere in the whole of the universe that could possibly be more awful, more terrible, than the wrath of God. That's what we're seeing here. This is what John is brought to see. God doesn't hide it. God reveals it. And he reveals where it's coming from. Can you think of any experience that any man or any woman or any boy or any girl could ever possibly have more terrible than the experience of the wrath of God. And yet, here it is. God is revealing it to John, where it comes from. Now we have, throughout the book of the Revelation, you have the repetition, as we've mentioned so often, of the number seven, the seven seals, and then the seven trumpets, and the seven thunders, and now the seven vials of divine wrath. Now, why should this wrath exist? What would cause God to send out his wrath, to send these angels on a holy mission, to pour out these vials of wrath, the fullness of divine wrath upon the earth, upon men. Well, look where it comes from. And this is the thing that we need to understand. Where it comes from, the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. Now we read from uh, Second Chronicles, there Solomon, as David is prepared before he died, the material and uh, the articles and the art of 
works and so on for the great house that Solomon would build. And look what is written as to what takes place. Solomon, first of all, verse 2 of this chapter, assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel unto Jerusalem. Why was were all these office bearers, all these leaders of the tribes, why are they all gathered here to Jerusalem on this event? Because something very important is about to happen. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is to be brought to its place. It's to be brought to where it belongs. David has gathered all these men to bring up the Ark of the Covenant. Notice how it's described here. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Then verse 7. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place. The place that belongs to the ark. But notice the way that here the scripture records what happens. The priest brought the ark of the Lord into its place. No. They brought the ark into his place. The ark is given a personality, as it were. It is a living article, as it were. It is awesome. It is wondrous. It is the very symbol of God's own presence. And it is put where God would have it, but where God will manifest his own power and his own glory. Now, it is brought into his place, to the oracle of the house, into the most holy Place, the place most becoming for God to manifest his presence. And we are told, even under the wings of the cherubims, even under the wings of the cherubims. Now you've heard me speak of the cherubims before. And their role in guarding, they are the God's guardsmen. And the Ark of the Covenant is put in his place. But over it are the cherubims, spreading their wings out over this holy spot. 
preserving that place as most sacred, protecting the ark of the covenant of God. Now we're told the cherubims spread forth their wings over the place of the ark. But then verse 10, there was nothing in the ark save the two tables which Moses put therein at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So now you have the Ark of the Covenant is put in its place. There you have the cherubims spreading their wings out over it. But inside it, and this is the reason they're spreading their wings, because inside that Ark are the two tables which Moses put therein. That is God's testimony. That is why it's called so often the Ark of the Testimony. Because the two tables are testimony to God's character. The sum of the law testifies to who God is, testifies to the fact he's the lawgiver testifies to the fact of his character, his attributes, his, his holy attributes, his righteousness, his justice, and so on. So it is the ark of the testimony because it is uh, testifying to who God is that dwells here in this very place. Now what does Solomon say about God that he has prepared this house for? We're told at verse 1 of chapter 6, Then said Solomon, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. God said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. Why? Here is something truly amazing. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And yet he dwells in the thick darkness. Here is part of the incomprehensible mystery of the eternal, immutable, divine being of God. When men think they know all about God, and that they have the capacity and the ability to explain everything about God, and fill us in in all the details of God, they are coming very far short. God is incomprehensible. And you and I can only know God to the extent that he reveals himself. And the marvel is that he has revealed himself in providence, he has revealed himself in his word, 
And he has revealed himself in the eternal Son who came into this world as the express image of the Father. But God says he would dwell in the thick darkness. And that's where Solomon expected God would dwell. Now, why does he say this? Then, said Solomon, something happened. And that's why Solomon is responding, saying this. Go back to chapter 5, verse 13 at the end of it. Then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Now, what happened on the Day of Atonement? The high priest went into the Holy of Holies, into the Holy of Holies. He entered into the tabernacle, but then he proceeded into the holy place and into the Holy of Holies. Now, what did he do? He took fire from the altar and he put it on a censer of incense that when he went into the presence of God, dwelling in the darkness, a cloud came between him and God. A cloud came between him and the law or the, uh, what Moses had received at, at Horeb, it was in that, uh, that Ark of the Covenant. And the cloud, you see, came between uh, the high priest and that Ark. But look at what happens here. The priest can't even enter. The priests can't even go about their performing their duties. The priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. This is God's provision of his own cloud. And the cloud, you see, is so great that the priests can't even come with any incense or any blood or anything. God's glory appears in his own majestic cloud. And Solomon recognizes, well, this is God demonstrating the the reality of his own statement that he would dwell in the thick darkness. Now go over to chapter 6, verse 11, and in it... That is, in it have I put in the temple the house that he had built for the Lord. In it have I put the ark wherein is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the children of Israel. The most important object to Solomon in that day was what was in that ark. 
the covenant of the Lord that he made with Israel, the children of Israel. Now when we go over to Revelation chapter 15, what do we see now? Well, we're taken beyond the type, beyond the shadows. We're taken into heaven itself, right into the holy of holies, as it were, to the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. The testimony in heaven, not in Solomon's temple, nor in the tabernacle of Moses, but the ark, the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven is open. Now what did Moses see in the day when the, temp- the tabernacle was dedicated? We're told Moses couldn't even enter in because the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle. Then in Solomon's day, the glory of the Lord filled the house and Solomon knew God is here in all his awesome glory. God has come to draw near to us. He has come with blessing. But why did God come? Because of the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant that God had made with the children of Israel. It was because of his covenant he came and made his presence felt and his glory felt uh, or seen amongst the great assembly that Solomon had assembled. Now you will remember that in John chapter 17, the great high priest of our profession, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, John 17 is often referred to as the great high priestly prayer of the Savior. Listen to him as he prays. And he is advancing toward the altar, as it were, where he will be the lamb for the sacrifice, and he will be the lamb that is slain, and his blood will be poured out, and he will be an offering to God to make satisfaction for the law and to atone for the sins of his people. Now, what does he say? In uh, verse 4 of John 17, Jesus says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. What's he asking for? Now glorify me. 
Now it is, it was said of the Savior while he was in this world, men beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When he entered on high into the holy place not made with hands, what did he do? He filled the house with the glory that he had with the Father before uh, the world was. It was his glory that filled the holy place. He was God, a very God, while he was man, a very man. But when he's exalted... And he enters into the holy of holies in heaven. The house is filled with his glory. Greater than any glory that was seen in typical style in the Old Testament. But that glory is bound up with his work, with his priesthood, with his work. And you will know that again and again uh, there is reference to the Ark of the Covenant in a peculiar way. It is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. The lid that was over the law was the mercy seat. Seat. Now, did you ever think, why would there be a seat at all in the Holy of Holies? The priest had to stand. He could never sit. He would enter in with blood. He would enter in with the, with the incense. But there was no seat for him. That seat belonged to God. That was God's seat. God didn't depart. He was seated there. It was his throne. But what did the high priest bring in to sprinkle upon the mercy seat? He brought blood in. And he sprinkled the blood upon God's seat, his seat of judgment, the seat from which he exercised all his authority within the camp of Israel. It was the seat of divine rule and judgment and authority. It was the seat of divine Heavenly justice. There God says, will I meet with you? Now he didn't say, there's where you will meet with me. But there I will meet with you. And how will I meet with you? There's only one reason. It's the blood. The blood that is sprinkled 
upon the seat. And that blood guarantees it's the seat of mercy. How often we read, we speak, we use the terminology without really getting a hold of the marvel of what we're talking about. There in the midst of the camp of Israel, in the holiest spot in the camp, there's a seat of mercy. And when the high priest brought in the blood, where did he sprinkle it? He didn't sprinkle it upon the cherubims, but he sprinkled it upon the seat. And that seat was over the law. You can't disconnect the law that was within and the seat that was over it. It was God's law, God's covenant, It was testifying to who he was. But then, when the high priest brought in the blood, there was now an additional testimony in that place. It was the, as we have it here in uh, Revelation 15, the temple of the tabernacle, of the testimony in heaven. What's been testified now of in heaven? Does the law not testify anymore? Of course it does. Testifies to who God is and what God requires. But then... The great high priest of our profession, he has entered within the veil. And the day that he entered, what happened? The veil was rent from top to bottom. His glory couldn't be contained anymore. Behind that veil was the glory of God. But the veil is rent from top to bottom. And the temple and the holy of holies is opened up. And that's why John was able to look. You imagine if he had taken it upon himself as an Israelite to go forward and say, well, I would love to have a little peek in here to see in this Curious darkness, what's in here? He would have perished. But here is a marvel, John saying, I looked and behold the tabernacle of the, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. What a sight he was given. But why? Because It isn't just the law that is testifying. It's the blood that is testifying. And the blood is testifying to an atonement. The blood is testifying to the debt paid. The blood is testifying to the law. And it is satisfied. 
And this is the testimony before God. Now then, what happens if that testimony is rejected? We read, we've already looked at those who are in heaven, and they overcame him, that is, the beast, and the dragon, and the powers of darkness, they overcame by what? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. By the blood of the Lamb they overcome and by the word of their testimony. These are singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. They are those who have had the victory over the forces of darkness and they're triumphant. They have received the testimony. They have received the testimony of the divine law against them. They have received the law testifying all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The law calling for their condemnation. The law testifying before God, these are guilty. And they've received that testimony. And the law has condemned them and they have not objected. They have not rebelled. They've received it. And they've come then to the testimony of the blood that testifies better things than that of Abel's. It speaks better things. They've come then to the speaking blood, and what's it? It's testifying the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth from all sin. And they've received that testimony. And they overcame then by the blood of the Lamb. But look at what we have here coming out of this place where this testimony is so clear. In heaven, God's immutable, irrefutable law testifies to who he is. And the blood that has been shed testifies to what Christ has done. What happens then to those who reject that testimony? I looked, seven angels came out of the temple. Yes, they are coming from God's own presence. And they are coming as the servants of God. They are coming as engaged in his service. And you can see eh, throughout the word of God the various services that are rendered to God by the angelic hosts. Angels are very prominent here and 
I think it's, it's over 70 times in the book of the Revelation we've referenced to the angels and to their service. It is very interesting, for example, if you went back to the book of Psalms and we sing it so often at a communion, Psalm 103, and yet we forget these marvelous truths again and again. In Psalm 103, you have there the psalmist, verse 20, he writes, Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments. When you have a reference, and I know there's different opinions as to its meaning and its significance, but when you have, for example, the reference in the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, that women are to cover their heads in the presence of God because of the angels. And I've referred to this in the past. There are various references to the angels, for example, in Isaiah chapter 6. They veil their faces in reverence before God and they veil their feet. The angels are astonished, would be astounded to see no order in the place of public worship because they know order and they know reverence in the presence of God, but they also don't know what it is to be disobedient and to be rebellious against God's commandments. What do they do that do his commandments? And we're going to see these angels coming out of the holy presence of God to do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of the Lord. Hearkening unto the voice of his word. The angels look on in astonishment when the church is rebellious and when people professing to be the children of God rebel against his commandments and refuse to obey them. The angels do his commandments and they hearken to his word. My, on the day of judgment, when the angelic hosts gather round as witnesses around the throne, what will they expect the God of justice to do? They who hearken to his word seeing sinners who've not hearkened, who've refused it, who've disobeyed it, who've rebelled against it. You see, in the Psalm 91, again, one of the marvels of the service 
of the angels, even the devil knows this. When the devil, when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil after his baptism, Satan actually used this very word to the Savior. Verse 11 of Psalm 91, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. The devil knows the scriptures. He knows the word of God. He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. He was quoting the Psalms. He was quoting from God's own word. And they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now the psalmist speaks in another psalm of the angelic host being thousands of thousands. And he has given them charge. When Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, and so on. I charge thee. God has given his angels a charge. Do you know what they're charged with? Looking after his people. I remember once I was down in London at the communion in London and we were traveling back, Reverend John McLeod and myself. We'd been visiting at a hospital and there was a reasonable journey and on our way back, on a return journey, Mr. McLeod fell asleep at the wheel of the car that he was driving until all of a sudden we hit the car, bump, 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 bump. And it, uh, that's what it was there for, to waken him up. And he, he suddenly sprang alive. He said, I must have fallen asleep there. We didn't say very much, but after that, but... When we arrived back at the manse, as we were getting out of the car, Mr. McLeod said, well, he said, the angel of the Lord was certainly with us today. And how little consciousness we often have of the angels of God, these who hear the word of the Lord. And they obey his commandments. And what's his commandment? What is his charge? What does he charge them with? Look after my people. Look after my sins. Keep them. Hold them up in your hands. Bear them up. These are the mighty messengers. These are the mighty servants that we have here. What are they going to do now? They're hearing the word of God. They're obeying his commandment. And they're sent forth with these golden vials full of the wrath of God. Now in the Old Testament, in the earthly tabernacle, the priests 
carried not vials of wrath. The very opposite. They carried bowls of blood. That's what they carried. They were bowls of blood. Blood that was shed to atone for sin. Now here, these angels, these priestly angels are not carrying bowls of blood, but bowls of wrath. Because the testimony of the blood has been rejected. And they are carrying bowls of wrath. And they are to pour them out. And they are to pour them out upon the earth. While the saints are singing that have gotten the victory. The angels are serving God. To pour out his wrath upon those who've trampled his law and trampled the Redeemer's blood under their feet. They've rejected God's testimony. They have said we will not have God to reign over us. And they've rejected the blood. We feel no need of it. We are righteous in our own eyes. And God ought to receive us. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. What are we told? No man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. As Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle because God's glory filled it. As the priest could not enter the great house that Solomon had built because God had filled it with his glory. Look at what John sees. No man could enter in here because of two things. The mighty glory of God has filled the tabernacle. But it isn't the glory alone now of the Holy Redeemer who's filled it with his glory, exalted and high and receiving power over all things. It is from the smoke of his, of the glory of God and from his power. And no man could enter. No man could cope with such a sight, with such a presence, with such a glory. This is the God that you and I are going to have to do with. And these angels are the real servants of God. And God is going to deal with those who reject his testimony. And if they have not 
fled to Christ who bore the wrath of God. The vials of wrath were poured upon him. God who dwells in the thick darkness. There was darkness over the land from the sixth to the ninth hour. Why? Because God was there. God who dwells in the thick darkness was there. And God was pouring his wrath upon the head of his beloved son. What will the wrath be like that will be poured on the heads of Christ-rejecting sinners? The angels are those who obey God's commandments. And they are those who hearken to his word. And that wrath is real. And that wrath is coming. Make no mistake about it. Poor sinner, that wrath is coming. And that is why we are told, flee. Flee from the wrath to come. Tell me what else in the scriptures we're told to flee from. Flee from the wrath to come. May God bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we thank thee that we are not left in darkness and ignorance. Thou hast throughout the history of men given testimony to thy justice, but thou hast given testimony to thy mercy, but thou art giving testimony to the reality of thy wrath. Do thou enable us to appreciate that one is as real as the other, that the wrath of God is as real as his love, that his wrath is as real as his mercy. And may those who are here Christless and graceless, may they flee in divine mercy from the wrath to come, and may they fly to Christ and lay hold of him. Do thy bless thy truth, pardon our sins, receive us for Christ's sake. Amen.